0: My name is Klaus Rostel, and I'm the director of the College of Extraordinary Experiences. You're listening to the Business of Extraordinary Experiences. Today, we're going to talk about the impact of the coronavirus. Surprise! But this time, we're going to talk about the coronavirus and how it has impacted higher education. And to help me with this, I have a very special co-host a gentleman of the most refined sort, who's also the executive director of postgraduate programs at the University of Surrey, which is quite a mouthful. He has been a professor, a guest lecturer all over the place, a visiting professor at schools both in England and on the continent, so to speak, and is a quite decent guy. Please welcome to the show, Professor Justin O'Brien. Justin, welcome. Applause, applause, applause. This is something we just don't get
1: in this new uh, education world where you're, you're, you're in zombie land or Zombie land. Um, getting feedbacks an absolute nightmare, and I'm finding it very hollow. I say something, I put my best stuff out there, and... You hear nothing, and, and sometimes you can see a little twitch, you know, the person's come off their uh, second screen or their third screen, and you're like, yeah, did that land? Was somebody in the background annoying them? And, and, and you just look, you look at a, a, a field, if you're lucky, a field of blank faces, actually students are very reluctant to kind of put their audio, their video feeds on, and, and you're just talking into a black hole of space. And it's incredibly challenging. So I think it's a, a really interesting topic to talk about the changes in, in higher education as a result of coronavirus. So thank you very much for allowing me to co host this uh, conversation with you today, Klaus. That's great. I'm really looking forward to it.
0: It is very much a pleasure to have you on board, Justin. And I'll just do the woohoo! Genuinely! which I would normally have done if we'd been for like a live audience we would got them to do it but now we just need to be each other's woo girls which is great Justin my ego's
1: gonna walk out the door and I won't you know my head's already big and it will just not get out of the room you're
0: fan. (laughs) And my ego that much. <laughs> let's let's start uh, with something simple, Justin. Tell me about what have been like the three biggest impacts from your from where you've been sitting on kind of the field of higher education. Speak blo- globally, but do it locally.
1: So three impacts. You might have to chase me on on two and three, but let, uh, let's go for it. Um, When we first started out in coronavirus, everyone's like, how are you going? What's going on? What's happening? And and for me, um, and for many of us, the lockdown, certainly in the UK, happened right at the end of the academic year. So we cobbled together a a, a few sessions uh, to provide students with support and preparation for their examinations and their final assignments Um, using technology that most of us were unfamiliar with. um, And students were very, very... um, Content, I think, with and and recognised the fact that it was a uh, uh, out of our control and where things didn't go brilliantly well. They were very forgiving, which was just fantastic. Um, and I think many of my academic colleagues, not only at my own institution but elsewhere, were also very positive and very um, very enthusiastic about trying out the the the, the, the new technology and the new ways of working. And then slowly, slowly, we started to discover that, you know, being on Zoom calls or or Teams calls all day long is considerably more stressful and tiring than than doing the same thing in a a real-world environment. So, um, and also, you know, uh, the the quick fix, the the Band-Aid plaster, uh, so to speak, was okay in the short term, but then I think it dawned on us that one coronavirus was going to stay not for a week, a month, three months, but potentially a year and a half. Potentially might never go away. Um, so I think we then started to to over uh, overthink the, the short-term tactical switch and then consider, well, what does this mean in the long term? And that suddenly got very exciting because there are a number of us in the profession who are really interested in shifting away from the traditional chalk and talk, uh, sage on the stage, uh, lecture, which is all about sharing and telling uh, knowledge um, and instead looking for a sort of guide on the side more uh, facilitating learning style um, and and the coronavirus gave the opportunity because although you know the the the, the separateness um, was was and the technology to 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 overcome that was difficult the Change was a chasm, you know, a a massive step um, and and an opportunity for us to really move the dial. TEL, or technology-enabled learning, has been huge Um, for many years. Everybody's been chiming, saying, look, online learning is the way to go. But it's really, in in the higher education space, uh, has made very little uh, impact. But hopefully, this opportunity, as horrible, Uh, And and as a nightmarish as it is, is going to allow the industry to reset the the frame and reset the expectations and look to work in in a radically different way. I know, Klaus, you've been teaching uh, a number of universities already. Um, in, a, in, a, in a lockdown environment, how, how have you been? Um, and you come from a non-traditional uh, university background. You're not a researcher, um, you're a practitioner, and you're you know, one of the most exciting service designers that I've ever met. Um, how, how did you go about trying to infuse your particular brand in this kind of learning environment?
0: So I feel almost obliged to lie and make up an interesting answer. But one of the things that I found, because I have, as you say, I have taught a couple of university classes here in lockdown. For me, it's been fascinating that we could teach digitally. We've been able to do that for some years now. That's not new. But now, since it's going from being an option to the default, it means that horizons are expanding. So I've gotten to teach a class in Hong Kong. I've got to teach a class in California and without too big of a stretch between those. So I've cheated a little bit because I I find that one of the things that digital does better is that it allows you to shift modes faster. And and let me give an example of that is that if you're sitting in a traditional classroom and you want people to do group work, you want to split up a 50-person class into four-person groups, then you need to worry about space. An auditorium is not really designed for that. Then you need to have people get up and do you have a different room? Are they going to sit at chairs? Are they going to move chairs around? Can you move chairs around? There are all these like minor logistical details that just end up stealing time so that simple sitting groups of four and discuss for two minutes will take 10 minutes of back and forth before doing so. Now with something like Zoom, you can just push a breakout button. And it takes one minute to set up and it automatically pulls people back in. So, so for me, one of the, the crucial things has been to use the strength of the format. And that is, especially that it's very easy to shift between watching a video, being in a breakout room, uh, putting stuff on a shared whiteboard or like a shared one of these nice visual tools, or simply listening and, and having like questions and plenum. So you can do the phase shifting, like, much faster. And instead of having this idea that for 45 minutes, if you only get 45 minutes, then you need to just cram as much info in there as possible and no questions and no exercises and no nothing. You can easily do a lot of different things with that. And of course the, the one of the things that I try to do if possible is I try to use physical elements as, uh, if possible. So if, if somebody is doing a, let's say we're doing a university lecture, I'll have at least one task where the students need to run off and find something else or move around, preferably. Not always, sometimes it's just straight Q&A because sometimes I'm boring and lazy as everyone else. But, but you, there's so many possibilities beyond the screen or, or with the format that you get to explore. And I think instead of moaning over the fact that we can't do this and this and this, which is true, we can look at what can we do. I know that got to be a very, very long one-sided answer, but uh, yeah. no, I, I, that's something I find fascinating.
1: Things are going off in my head. One of the things that you know, by default in universities we seem to go for groups of four, because that's an optimum number. I think in an online world, actually groups of two are much better. Sure, because sure. The, the clunkiness of handing over between <coughs> sorry, <coughs> between people, is quite significant. And if you're relatively inexperienced in that space, you can lose a lot of time in agreeing who's going to talk, how you talk, you talk over each other. Sure. Um, once you're into time differences, the talking over thing can get pretty intense and also the, the, the kind of the conversation drops and what did you say? So there's, a, there's a, a, a significant kind of period that you lose at the beginning of the meeting while you get everybody on board and ready to, to work on tasks. Um, and you can overcome that by working in pairs, and I think pairs is really powerful because in a pair you're either listening with the anticipation of speaking, or you're speaking with the anticipation of listening. Yeah, it's, it's there's a there's and you don't lose anything in scale because you can then kind of encourage people to co- to contribute back with their reflections. Um, one of the things that I noticed that was a real positive about hosting um, digital webinars was that actually, I was getting more engagement from students. Often when there's 10 people in a room, uh, students are very uncomfortable at speaking out. They're really interested in listening and being part of the group, but often one, two, three students, the same students week in, week out, are the ones who are confident enough and um, some, sometimes it's, a, it's about you know, personal experience. Sometimes it's about language capabilities. You know, I often work in a very international environment. And, and clearly, if you feel more confident about your ability to communicate in English, that, that, that's, uh, that gives you a bit of a, a, an advantage. So whereas in the, in the real world, the seminars, um, I, I had a class last year where um, we had eight repeated seminars. Well, I could consolidate of, of in theory 25 people. I was able to consolidate that those down into fewer seminars of more students. Um, I got more active students participating. I you didn't notice that there were so many people lurking and just listening, they were very happy. But the real revelation was that you know my Gen Z students were really happy to be tapping away on, on the chat line. Now, as, sure. as a bit of an old fogey um, instructor, um, if you're talking and trying to play chat lines at the same time, that's that's a new skill. That's really quite challenging to do well. But again, what I'm trying to do is to be a facilitator of learning and to provoke questions and not to hog the bandwidth with like I am now, uh, with my own ideas and with my own voice, but to bring forward the students and the student conversation. So in many ways, those chats are really powerful in terms of getting the quieter students um, and also those students who are, are commuting, have caring responsibilities, who aren't able to turn up to every session on campus uh, week week in week out, um, we've then opened the door, and this is a real positive uh, development. So, um, you know, al- 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 although you know we're missing some of the, you know, the the, the social kind of uh, bumping into each other, happenstance, and and that's you know that's a that's a big challenge. Uh, that the, the the video environment doesn't help us with the lockdown video environment doesn't help us. But in terms of pedagogic engagement, we're we're able, I think, uh, particularly if sessions are recorded, to allow students to um, engage with their learning in in the format and the time and place when it suits them. Which is again something that you know higher education professionals tend to be on the mature, more mature end of the spectrum. And then <laughs> the wisdom and knowledge takes a bit of time to, uh, to accumulate. Um, and, and, and many of us kind of remember back to the times when we were at university and what we did and how we did it. And that right. conservatism and changing that conservative, maybe this is my second point, is, is, is a fantastic opportunity that coronavirus provides us in terms of saying, yeah, look, let's draw a line in the sand. We've had 200, 300, 400 years of teaching with Chalk and Talk me telling you everything, and then you playing it back to me in a different format. Let's move away from that, and let's kind of try and use uh, use this this uh, this defining uh, moment as an opportunity to re- reframe what we do and how we do it.
0: I think you touched on several interesting points, and I'm just going to make our lives easier for our talk here and say that the nitty gritty is something that fascinates me because it's so often when you're trying to to talk about a subject, in this case, the impact of coronavirus on higher education, that it gets very abstract and very big and very kind of hard to figure out what's actually going on. So, So thanks for taking it nitty gritty, and let's keep to that, because you said something super interesting about simply the the modes of engaging with an instructor that in a normal classroom, you can raise your hand, you can ask a question. That's kind of the standard way of doing it. You can raise your hand, wait till you're called on and then you ask a question. But here you can write instead. And that of course means that some people, even if it's such a simple thing as English as a second language, maybe you're Spanish, maybe your English isn't so good. Maybe you're just, you don't feel comfortable in big crowds, but suddenly you can write and then you have, as you say, you have much more student engagement because you have different ways of engaging with the instructor, where before you only have one. And if you don't like that one, then it's just too bad. And if you like that one, you're going to hog the space. But no matter how good a chatter you are, you can't really out-chat the others because there's a limit to how long your question can be. While, well, as we know, because we're both bad at this, when you start talking, it can easily go from like, I'm going to ask a certain question. And it's now going to turn into like a three-minute question where two minutes and 40 seconds was basically me tooting my own horn. A Brilliant. Uh, this, I mean, this came home to me. A, a brilliant
1: intervention is to take away one of your five senses. I think that I learned this at the College of Extraordinary Experiences. Um, and, and I subsequently did it. Uh, several, and it's been really, really powerful. If you replace a meeting where people are trying to generate ideas, and don't allow them to speak. So you say, right? The the power of speech is gone, and here are some post-its or bits of paper, and you write your ideas around, and you use the the session uh, to operate with w- without speaking, speaking and hearing, and uh, encouraging people to to articulate their ideas. In writing, but also then to add to them in terms of gesticulation, we found that several uh, s- several people who who whose mother tongue wasn't English found this incredibly empowering. They said that usually that, that they feel somewhat inhibited, they feel that their voice is secondary, um, and this was a brilliant opportunity for them to, um, to 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 be able to you know feel more engaged, and more empowered. So um, so so again, I think that the, the, the we need to be looking at uh, the, the new technological solutions as ways to kind of harness these sorts of opportunities to to uh, embrace and enable people who perhaps were excluded. In the, you know, if if you were one of the super bright, you know, the privileged whites. Um, mm-hmm middle or upper income student who has been groomed, you know, a very expensive education, is very self-confident, has huge social capital. They're going to be sitting at the front of the class. They're going to have done the readings before the class. um, And they sit there and, you know, they're, they're more than comfortable to stick their hand up and challenge and ask Interesting questions. In many ways, that makes for a great lecture environment. You want lots of people like that, and you don't want to be um, point, pointing or picking or asking, you know, desperate asking to a room of silence to, to, for, for for input. Um, and 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 I think the technology is a brilliant way that, that should be able to enable more engagement in this kind of space.
0: What are what are some of the roadblocks that you encounter? Because not only are you pretty close to the teaching environment, but you're also you're also one of the decision makers. I mean, you're you're one of the people calling the shots. Not kind of on a, a national or global level, but but where you're sitting is you have considerable influence. What is, what is stopping you from making the radical changes you want to make? So,
1: um, this is a fantastic question. Um, a fantastic discussion point, Klaus. I think, and um, one of the we one of the things is we've been talking about bots and AI and the power of machine learning. Um, and you think that actually universities will be one of the, 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 you know, they've got computer science technology departments that are able to develop this stuff. They're all about learning. You think that this would be something that would be coming out of universities. I think I have seen a university using a, a chatbot for the well-being uh, in the well-being space in in, uh, in Australia. So it's not that it isn't happening, but it's surprising that it's not happening in a more profound and more significant way. I think what, one of the issues is, is structurally higher education, uh, struggles to unite and put to, if you if you think about universities typically are state controlled or charities, there are you know, a number of private uh, universities and some that are incredibly wealthy, but those are, tend to be uh, few and far between. Um, and if you think about a, a university as a 100, 200, 300 million uh, pound business, um, pounds, dollars, the the same sort of money. Um, If you think about them in in, in that sort of way, um, they don't have the sorts of big lumps of money that they can throw at technology. Um, And historically, the IT has chased the money. The IT industry has chased the money. So they've been after big corporates, big companies. And universities kind of have have got a, a taste for taking on board free software, open source software, take the cheapest the easiest the most basic solution to everything on the basis that fundamentally they they don't have the cash to splash and, and create really sexy amazing uh, digital environments um probably also something to do with the fact that there isn't that much competition there wasn't that much dynamism that stuff's now changing um, and you know, certainly in the UK environment, we have for, for a number of years now uh, been operating in, in a space where the government has act- actively encouraged universities to compete in a, in a market um, and look for a competitive advantage. And we've seen the emergence of new agile uh, universities who are less rear view mirror thinking in terms of their strategy, in terms of what their brand delivers and have, you know, these are the non-traditional former polytechnics and colleges of higher education who had often ugly buildings in not very desirable locations, didn't have the benefits of huge amounts of research funding, don't have a fantastic research pedigree, and therefore don't have fantastic brand reputations. And they've had to fight to establish themselves on the basis and the quality of their teaching experience. And that's been really interesting to see them adopt you know, new technologies and to try and really enhance the student experience. But they've had to do that at scale. So I, I always point to these sorts of universities as the as, as the go-to place to see, you know, where this technology is making a significant difference. You know, in terms of systematizing interventions for health and well-being, uh, but also, you know, study skills, or we've seen that you've failed the last couple of assignments. Um, at the moment a lot of a lot of universities operate that stuff on little more than Excel you know, a simple spreadsheet that sits on a shared land drive somewhere um, and and the te- and the technology here is, is, is if if you can invest appropriately um, then that, then it 's available to solve those problems but historically um, you know answer coming back full circle really and answering my question the issue has been the value of those developments the uh, the, the profitability from IT vendors in terms of servicing those needs hasn't been really attractive enough uh, attractive enough to do that um, and potentially because the the universities themselves haven't been smart enough to to group together and, and, and form the, the the procurement alliances that are needed to put you know to make that that those developments you know the the, the uh, at the front end of, uh, of the process, you know, really putting in place, um, you know, some creative thinking in terms of saying, well, look, if we all chip in a million or two million each, we can get these systems. But that's, uh, again, that's a way of working. Although the, you know, the HE sector tends to work together on some things, this has not been an area that, that's really developed.
0: How about, and and this is a, a, a little bit of a detailed question from where you're sitting, how about kind of teaching the teachers, that if there's one thing that I've, I've always been on the fringes of formal learning educations, and I've always been surprised at how much teachers at all levels will talk about the glory of teaching and learning and being up to date and kind of thinking new ways, yet spend incredibly little time and resources both personally, but also kind of structurally, on further re-education. How how there has been some of that during Corona, but how how is that kind of turning out? And has everybody just said, "Send me to Zoom classes, Justin," or "Give me some teaching in in how to teach remote"? Or have they been have they resisted, or have they uh, supported? I think is the question.
1: I think what's happening across the campuses this summer is. Uh, everybody's been told to de-emphasise their research, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, the summer, I call it the long grass of summer, It's when academics go AWOL and are encouraged to go AWOL and to spend time, you know, producing the the, the high quality international research that that drives the, the, their brand's uh, reputation. Um, so this summer, essentially, people have been told to to put the brake on that activity. They won't. They'll continue to do it because the people doing it love doing that research and that's their, one of their primary raison d'etre is to be working at a university is, is, is the ability to have time and space to do that kind of work. Um, they will. There are lots and lots of self-help groups, sprints, um, super uh, SWAT teams, extra training events, online training events, lists of resources, that stuff's coming out of everybody's ears. Um, Often, as as you suggest, it's basic nitty gritty stuff like this is how to effectively run a meeting using this technology platform. Sadly, from from my perspective, um, uh, uh, and I'll, I'll be interested to hear your views on this, Klaus. Is what does that mean? Um, but, but but you know, where are the new cool tools and tricks? Yeah, and I've kind of put a call out there saying, look, you know, one of my colleagues, for example, you want you want nitty gritty came through and said usually as an icebreaker for my class i get everybody to stand up and form a map of the world where they locate themselves where they should be in the map of the world i think that would be quite difficult really for scale and scoping in a room and what have you But anyway they, they create a, a form of a world an aerial world map that allows them to bump into each uh, into each other and talk about where they come from and uh, and, and, and you know and clump together because you know the hot spots for where students typically come from in different universities. Um, so we, 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 we see that, and he's like, well, how can I do that in a virtual classroom? So I went away and found that somebody in Canada had actually done this and used Google Maps and set up a little lesson plan in terms of how to do this virtually, how to create a kind of, kind of thing. Now, there's a little bit of a thing in, in you don't necessarily want to tell everybody and, and uh, where you live yeah, there's a there's a, a you know, health and safety kind of issue there so you know you need to subvert that bit, you know, highlight a point of interest in your local uh, area sure, sort of, sure. rather than your so we so we developed that and that's using google maps a free resource a bit of coding and then interfacing into a virtual learning environment very very easy to do but we need 50 or 100 or 150 or 500 of those tools that are relatively cheap, relatively easy to integrate, to sow, to enhance the uh, the existing learning environment. And you know, and, and 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 that's you know another part of the summer activities is to get out there and really um, find more interesting ways that are above and beyond the, the the kind of the hour-long lecture. And I think there's a you know certainly in. In in both institutions that I've got a foot a foot in, having just left Royal Holloway and now just starting it, sorry. In both institutions, that's something that people are increasingly beginning to recognise that Gen Zs don't find hour-long, two-hour-long lectures the most effective way. Uh, to learn, particularly in the UK context, the Students Union has lobbied very hard from an inclusivity perspective to get those sessions recorded. So most students are kind of they wake up in the morning, you know, about eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, and Recent they're going, "Do I turn up for class or not?" Um, and 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 the reality is, well, why do I need to bother? Because I can get the recording at the point when I need the learning. So they're much, you know, they're much more instrumental and much more. Um, digital natives who are very used to kind of finding information in, in, on their phone predominantly, but also on their computer when they want it.
0: And I think that that's uh, there, you say something really interesting there that why should they show up because they can just listen to it later. And, and that's of course because a lot of, if teaching is one way, then you might as well listen to it later. We usually say that if, if what you're going to do, if what you're going to deliver is something I could just see on YouTube, then do something else. Do something that uses the room, uses the people, uses the interactivity. Because the other thing that can be great, you can but deliver that on YouTube. Now
1: there's a that, thing and, that, and that's the pivot that I think we're looking to make happen is to say, look, there's value in this kind of stuff. Make it once, make it high quality, put it to video, the flipped classroom it's called, put that stuff down there and then use the time, you know, the three hours exactly a week that you have with students. Use that time to in, in different ways to be more interactive. Because students often seem to value that kind that well, they want the whole package. But you know, if you're gonna if if you're a high cost individual, you know, make the most of that time and make it really fun and interesting.
0: Very true. And then you can also have that everybody listens to the world's best to the world's best when it's talking about volcanoes or political theory instead of just the person they have at that particular institution. So we're going to round off in a moment, and I want to leave you with an idea, and this is something I've been doing a little of uh, personally, is that... One thing I I told a lot of people was go out, sign up for something, get some ideas, because even if you go to somebody else's lecture or conference or whatever online event, and it's usually free and available, then you're going to get something. But what I found was really effective, because people say, yes, I'll do it, and then it never happens. What I found really effective was doing guided study trips to other people's events. So I would take a group, let's say 10 Uh, university teachers, and then I would take them and they would join me for a one-hour webinar on uh, astrophysics or something way out of what they were normally doing. And then afterwards, we'd have like a small study circle discussing, what did we learn? What did you notice? What do you take away? Because if you tell people to self-study, some will, but a lot won't. But if you make it a group activity, and here it's really easy. I can take a group of people from all over the world, sign up for something in Brazil, and then afterwards we can have a chat, and then we'll be back at our dinner tables without anybody moving. So that's an idea that has been tested, may be able to be passed along. And we're now just at our, I want to continue this sadly, but we're hitting the half hour mark. So you have time for one incredibly short piece of wisdom before we round off. Um.
1: I I've, I've got three things I want to say. Am I allowed to say three, or just, just as long one. as they're fast? Okay, so three top tips: give unconditionally, and I think that ties into your point, which is um, you know the, the internet works on a, on the basis of an exchange. So it, it, I give stuff for free uh, or or at low cost. You, you need to give back, and then we we all win. So I think give unconditionally is a, is a really really important. Um, Amen. That yes. We need to get, to, to get across, to, 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 particularly to young people. Number two, just say yes to every opportunity. It may not oh, be yes. Yes, yes, yes. and wicked and amazing and obvious in the first instance, and it may take you down a blind alley and it may be uncomfortable and you may get nothing out of it. But if you keep saying yes, you keep turning over those stones and kissing those frogs, eventually you find a prince or a princess or, 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 or a tadpole, whatever you're looking for. Um, and the final point is always hang in till the end. Yeah, um, and wait for those unexpected surprises. Um, I'm thinking of particularly of, you know, your, your football game, your rugby game, that amazing score that happens in the dying moments. You may have given up and said, oh, I'm going to rush home and, and beat the beat the queues for the traffic. Or in the cinema, when the credits are rolling and, and you sit there and you wait, because sometimes the movie makers put a really cool piece of content that only, only the people who've got the perseverance to hang in their benefit. And
0: sometimes that's the best bit. So always hang until the end. And for those of you who've been hanging with us till the end, you just got Justin's three excellent pieces of advice. Thank you to all of our listeners. You've heard Justin O'Brien and you've heard me, Klaus Austin, thank you for listening.